Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, the internet, uh, ethics, um, robots, all kinds of stuff. Um, thank you for being with us tonight. And tonight, uh, around the desk, we have uh, Dan Morganti. How are you, Dan? Yeah, very well. Thank you. How are you, Warren? I'm feeling good. Feeling good. Um, the last kind of uh, dregs of summer, kind of like floating through the window. So yep. uh, I'm going to enjoy the sun while we can. Absolutely. Uh, also, Laura Summers, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Warren. Um, you've got a little bit of autumn going on here, though. I, I do. Oh, well, look, I was in a big corporate office today, and the AC gets pumping, and then you get mm. cold. So I basically always bring winter clear for a big corporate like AC situation. Mm. Wise. Um, I'll be with you also. I'm Warren Davies. And tonight on the show, we've got some really interesting stuff. Um, I think I did tweet out show of the year so far. Um up against the it's a big call. It's three early, other shows. Early yeah. statement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how can we top this? Um, <laughs> we are we are talking about uh, something that we uh, often um, explore uh, on Bite Into It. If if you're a, a listener, um, ethics. Um, what are we doing? Why are we doing things? Is it right? Um, should we be doing something else? And um, uh, one of the uh, the Bite team has um, created an ethics litmus test, um, which is a great little. Um, um, way to interrogate some of the big things that, that we talk about. And uh, Laura's going to um, uh, take a step to the left a little bit later in the show and talk about um, something that she's been working on there, which is exciting. And we're also uh, going to have a chat to um, the team, one of the team, uh, behind uh, a University of Melbourne initiative to sniff out beer and, uh, I guess, um, help all those Melbournians, um, Portland, all, all those people from around the world who really like to get their nose into the beer and... Um, understand what's going on they've removed a little bit of the subjectivity from it um for better or worse and we're going to understand what's going on there um a little bit later on in the show stick around for that but um before those things we do have some news so um we're going to talk a little bit about some um, stuff from around the world uh i am always interested in um uh, what's going on with uh cash and digital cash and um uh, i guess um uh, financial technology generally um um, mostly just from a user point of view, it's interesting to know sort of what's in our hands and why. Uh, Sweden has done uh, the interesting thing in introducing the e-krona, um, which is, a, 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 I guess, a digital version of their um, of their currency. Um, the Riksbank, uh, Sweden's central bank, has announced the launch of a year-long pilot um, to test the proposed e-krona. Um, it'll be distributed um, using oh, distributed ledger technology inspired by blockchain um, that uh, runs a lot of the cryptocurrencies. So it's interesting. It's um, physical cash is, uh, I guess, uh, in Sweden and uh, in Melbourne and in many places um, becoming a little bit rarer. Hopefully we don't see the end of it because it is important still to have cash in the system for a variety of reasons. But um, I think this is uh, this is interesting. I think um, uh, technology has come a long way. Um, uh, digital currencies are a lot more secure. Um, we have a lot more um, control um, over our personal security um, I was actually watching people playing with cash today, and it just felt weird. Like, um, it's like Monopoly money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like oh, it feels a little surreal stuff. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting point in that time. Mm-hmm. What, what what do you guys think about um, potentially not having um, those amazing plastic notes with the beautiful artwork floating around? Well, I think it'd be like just as long as 
it doesn't disadvantage anyone Mm. to go completely uh, e-cash, which I think it would. There'd be people who don't have the infrastructure to deal with Mm. um, going completely e-cash. So I think like a balance of maybe half their new mint comes through Mm. e-dollars instead of Mm. um, just paper and slowly like less and less of the share becomes paper, but it's still um, just a just there for the people who need it it was kind of going that way in san francisco there was kind of um and then pushed back from the city to make sure that um cash was still acceptable at a lot of places yeah you'd have all these places just sort of running square and stuff like that yeah people be trying to buy basics well yeah i'm not surprised with all the (laughs) issues that san francisco has with homelessness and (laughs) you know (laughs) the the underclass and the upper class in san francisco and it's it's worth considering that well you know we think we're talking about e-cash which is like essentially supposed to be just digital cash um, you know, we're seeing programs already where there's attempts at government control over your spending habits for things like the digital cashless welfare card. So we want to be careful about what kinds of controls we put in place so that if we ever ended up in a fully cashless society, it wouldn't have any restrictions on everybody's spending, not just people who are more disadvantaged. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It would be um, interesting. There has been uh, conversations here in Australia about... Um, uh, digital currencies and um, how people uh, use, um, say, Centrelink payments and so forth, where they can be redeemed. Um, can you purchase you know, alcohol and, and so forth? So um, you're right there, the whole kind of privacy and sort of freedom to use cash, um, especially as controlled by a central bank, is is really interesting. Mm. We will uh, we'll keep an eye on that one there. It's good that they're running it as a, as a pilot. It's running until the end of um, February next year, um, and they said that there could be more tests. So um, good on them for, for getting in there and uh, having a bit of a look. Um, there's also stuff going on um, on the other side of the world, Dan. Uh, yes, Japan offers 10 gigabits per second uh, speeds, and Australians are sad with what they have in comparison. Um, are we? Just say, I, say yeah. that again. Not 10 megabits, 10 gigabits. Oh, gigabits, sorry. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. You were, sorry. I'm just re-emphasizing. You said it perfectly. I'm just ah, saying okay. like, in case you didn't, it didn't land in your brain. Gigabits is a lot of data. Holy cow. Yeah, that's, it's a crazy amount of data. Like I couldn't uh, fathom a situation where I'd necessarily need that much at once unless I'm uh, downloading uh, 30 copies of um, Demolition Man with uh, Wesley Snipes. and Which you are want uh, to do. Yeah, which mm-hmm. I, I need to do. Um, but yeah, the uh, Japanese telco providers, Nippon Telegraph and Telephone, um, have released new plans offering these speeds for also uh, US $55 a month. So comparable prices for... 10 times the speed. I know I'm, I'm bad with working at Giga and Mega and converting and stuff like that, but it's a, a lot more speed for around the same price. Um, and I mean, it's, I always get to this point where comparisons with other countries, um, we're now 64th in the UCLA speed test rankings, but Japan is a much more urbanly dense uh, country than Australia and Australia is mm. always going to have issues with um, covering the entire country with mm. uh, reliable internet, but still, we we could be doing more. <laughs> um, for comparison, I just got NBN installed literally like two or three hours ago, and um, my partner did a speed test and said that it was about eighty meg- megabytes 
up, uh, or sorry, uh, downloads in 30 up. So 80 megabytes translates to 0.64 gigabits. Oh my. So that gives you, and that's actually really good speeds for Australia, especially at a residential home. Can only download half a copy of Demolition Man <laughs> featuring Wesley Snipes and Sylvester Stallone. I think it's a natural point in history where Demolition Man should just <laughs> go, go where it needs to go. Have you seen it just recently? <laughs> Interesting. Um, uh, another thing that uh, caught our eye, um, Joe Redman, what's going on there, Laura? Oh, yeah, Joe Redman, who's um, colloquially known as PJ Reddy on Twitter, um, is sort of well-known as a essentially one of the fathers of computer vision research. He's He's um, uh, been a student and a researcher in the field for quite some time, and he came out publicly just a couple of days ago basically saying that he's going to not do computer vision research anymore because of his privacy and ethics concerns. Um, so he said, I stopped doing this research because I saw the impact my work was having. I loved the work, but the military application and privacy concerns eventually became impossible to ignore. Um, and that's, it's it's like both heartening and a bit sad, right? Like it's a bit sad for someone who's such a genius and so well known in the community to have to make that stance because they don't feel like we have the maturity as a, as a collective industry and research group to basically like contain the power. We don't, we don't, we can't do it. We're, we're doing it wrong. How, how long has Joe been sort of working in this space or? Um, I think he's one of those been around in machine learning since before it was cool. I don't know mm. exactly, but I, I would say it's well over like a decade and probably closer to two. Right. Um, but yeah, he, he joined Twitter in 2008, if that gives mm. you an idea. Um, mm. So probably at least since before then. Yeah. Interesting. You kind of, um, you, you want to find a way to encourage people with that kind of experience to stick around, maybe just kind of um, shift their focus or something like that. It's oh, well, he, he hasn't like completely bowed out of machine yeah. learning full stop. He just said, I won't do computer vision, which is usually yeah, yeah. used for facial recognition. Yeah, yeah. So like the, the, the aspects in which you're trying to train machines to look at pictures and know what they are. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Um, I think we might even, uh, I know we talk about Facebook a, a little bit, but um, I'm more interested in talking about Firefox. I, I think that's a pretty cool um, thing that's going on there. Yeah, fi- well, like, you know, on mm. the other side of the, the like, new spectrum, Firefox <laughs> yeah. is about to release a feature they've been working on for quite some time, um, which is called DNS over HTTPS, or DOH for mm. short. Um, and DNS is the domain name server, the thing that holds the, like, words that go into your URL. Your, your URL. Mm. <laughs> there we go. Um, and basically, it's one of the least secure bits of how you access a website. So when you when you are pulling all the bits and bytes down, that's all being encrypted now because almost all websites are over these secure certificate um, servers. So there's, like, a handshake on each end, which is saying, are you who you say you are? Yes, I am mm. who I say I am. And we, we know that like the person giving us that data is legitimately what I asked for. Um, whereas, whereas like the DNS lookup bit's still reasonably insecure and there's a bunch of, you know, cowboys doing DNS hosting on the internet with varying levels of security and it, it can be a vector for attack. But also, um, interestingly, there's been a lot of pushback against this effort and some people have been calling them... Um, the internet villains for pressing ahead with a security feature because they're claiming that it will make it more difficult to spot terrorist materials and child abuse imagery and to sort of track down. So it one of the things that this insecure DNS lets us do is um, basically snoop on what you've been looking at. So it's, it's essentially like a form of metadata that you can look at and see where you've been on a computer if that um, mm. is stored in, in the computer, in the browser log. So 
Um, I mean, it's not exactly like browser history, but it's it's mm. a thing that if you know what you're doing, you could go find. It's funny that they're being called the internet villain. I'm sure it's by people who make no mention of the fact that they're going to lose a bunch of money from this kind of thing as by, well. By the villains. Mm. By yeah. The villains. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, we did also want to point out there's been, uh, uh, I guess, a bit of a milestone, a sad one. Um, uh, Catherine Johnson has died at the age of 101. Um, she was... Um, by all reports, and history will show an amazing woman, um, but not a lot of people had heard about her um, until recently. Um, we are um, the default um, space show on Triple R until they mix up the grid again, so we do feel um, uh, obliged to report on, on, on space news. So, worked at NASA, she was a, a mathematician, um, and worked there from sort of uh, early on, really early on. What, what yeah, happened? Well, she was also one of the first human computers. So like before mm. computing was considered a hardware thing, there were these people who had jobs that was called the computer, and she was one of them. <laughs> so she was literally doing maths equations to work out things like, how do I throw a rocket at the moon and hit it on target, as opposed to like, you know, go wildly off course. So they're doing all these very complicated maths equations and also even though they had early computers at the time this was happening they weren't super confident in the results so they were often double checking them with real people Mm. um like um i i saw a tweet about katherine johnson that was quite good it was it said katherine johnson a mathematician to the last she stayed with us until she was in her prime because she died at a prime number (laughs) (laughs) This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Triple R with Laura, Dan and Warren. Hey, um, if you've ever kind of got jammed up on a question and uh, put it to the pub test or um, put it to the Google test, um, there's now a better test um, that you can put it to. It's called the ethics litmus tests. Uh, it's been developed by our very own Laura Summers, uh, who now conveniently joins us in the studio, um, separate to her other role of being in the studio. No, look, 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 I just put on my other hat and now <laughs> wow. I'm here as a guest. Um, Sparkly you... fingers. <laughs> <laughs> you've been busy. Um mm. What have you been doing? Um, I've been working uh, to develop tools to support fair machine learning and um, help us think about what we need to do to put better guardrails in place so we can build technical systems that make decisions at scale and don't propagate existing harms, existing biases, make inequality worse. Um, so I've been I've been very much down in the weeds, but I, I wanted to come out a little bit and think about what sort of like the fundamental questions are that we need to ask. Like, what is okay? What can we do? What's allowed? And come up with a tool that helps us practice having those conversations because like, to be honest, it's really awkward and we're really bad at it. <laughs> I feel like... Um, uh... It's something that you are drawn to naturally in the time that I've known you. Mm. Where you're like, how do we how do we tease this apart? Like, what are the layers of it? What made you just kind of go? You know what? I need to get this into a jar and make oh, it fun. Oh, how? Well, yeah, great question. It's a totally. It's like I woke up January third and I was like, I'm going to make this thing, and it just landed fully formed in my head. I honestly, mm. it, but it was brewing for a while, and I think that 
like I, I can say that there's three clear references for things that inspired the project. One is The Good Place. I'm obsessed. It's a TV show about moral philosophy, but it's incredibly entertaining, and it's written by the people from Parks and Rec. Very so funny. If you, yeah, right? Mm. Amazing. How how do they make Kant entertaining? I don't get it. <laughs> it's a, it's like some kind of miracle. Um, but you know, like they do this job of bringing a very popular and very like, you know, lighthearted approach to what people tend to think of as a very serious problem. And I think like that rebranding of ethics is incredibly savvy and smart. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Brian Eno's oblique strategies. Um, I imagine you've seen these. Mm. Um, they're a card deck that have gone around and they're a tool to help us like break through creative blocks and think about something laterally or come at it from a different angle. So very much the same kind of approach. Um, and I also read, um, Atomic Habits by James Clear recently, and he's talking about how do you build up a habit um, from scratch and how do you do it in a way that's sort of small, repeatable, like isn't trying to like get from where you are now to who you want to be in the future, like all in one big step, but rather, you know, picking off small, little repeatable things that you can find 10 seconds, 30 seconds in your day to do um, and just finding ways to build on those sort of micro habits, you might even say, and, and find ways to make that sort of move in the direction you want to go rather than being like, oh, well, you know, I'm just a bad person because I didn't have the willpower to do it all in one big crack. How do you kind of deal with these questions yourself, either personally or at work, or what's your experience with ethical tests? Um, I struggle with them, as I hope everyone does. Like, that's the point of the ethical test. It's meant to give you a... Uh, conundrum that you can't see any clear path towards and mm. um, I actually listened to a podcast uh, by Malcolm Gladwell uh, he was talking about co- uh, costuary or I'm not sure if I'm saying that right but it's basically just a way of thinking where you um, yeah you have to get down into the nuts and bolts of what you mean or what the problem's talking about and um, I guess uh, with with this card deck is it like is it linear? Like, do you have to go from card to card, or can you jump in anywhere with these cards? And I think we're going to find out, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to do a test live on air. So oh. this is this is the first live ethics litmus test, everybody. Interesting. World first. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, like I think the idea I had was something that you could just pick up and play with. And I, I wrote a set of activities for people to try with it. Yeah. But also, I just wanted you to like be able to look at it and be like, oh yeah, I I can see how to use this. Yeah. Right. Um. Would you two like to try an ethics litmus test? I absolutely would. I was I'm, thinking that, yeah. I'm opening the glass file. It's on, uh, we're streaming this on Twitter as well. Oh, so if you want to get onto the bite into a Twitter. I wish I had like the sparkly Instagram <laughs> <laughs> filter going on so that as we unbox this, we can see. So I've got the deck here. So I've got, I've got a provocation or a scenario to start with. And then maybe you two can think about if there's another one you want to test next. So we can do this a couple of times, see how it feels. Okay. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the scenario and then I'm going to pick a random card and you're going to both think about what your answer is for not too long because we're live on air. (laughs) And then you're going to say them to each other and then we're going to work out what to do from there. Okay. Okay, so the scenario. You are a chocolate maker manufacturer. So you make chocolate, like think Cadbury's. Delicious, yes. Or Glad about Cocoa this. Black, maybe mm. Daryl Lee. Should we argue about who's the best chocolate brand? Not no. Cocoa Black. Yeah, Cocoa Black, yeah. Cocoa Black. So you're Cocoa Black. Okay. And you're buying ads for Facebook. And you discover as you look into the filters that you can target people based on having recently broken up with their partner. The mm. question is, should you? Yes, profits above all else. <laughs> Dan, you're fired. Yeah, okay. Damn it, you're a volunteer. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to pick. 
I'm going to pick a litmus test. I'm okay. going to pick a provocation at random. And the, the provocation is, have we assessed the cost of failure? In that scenario In that you mentioned? In this scenario. So the cost of failure. That can be whatever you think it means. So I'm a chocolate maker. Hmm. I'm trying to decide whether or not I should advertise to people based on a recent breakup. Hmm. So this question's a little bit uh, like you can come at it from what, what do you consider failure? So would yeah. you say failure is you didn't make any money or failure is you provided a a bad product or failure is in you've manipulated people into buying your product? Uh, Did we make the right decision? Yeah. Is that failure? Is it? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can um, see. Did we, did we like make someone become overweight because they ate too much chocolate. Yeah, after a messy breakup as well. After a messy breakup, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I've definitely been known to dig into a bowl of Nutella by itself before after a bit mm. of a hard time. So yeah. you never know. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, do you have any any responses, Warren? Uh to the first one, I think um my inclination is to be neutral on it and just mm-hmm. let let things decide. So um put out a thing for um, people who've broken up, put out a thing for people who haven't, mm-hmm. put out a thing that's got nothing to do with that and mm-hmm. then then do that, get the information in to say, hey, we've got something of significance here and let's interrogate it from a few different angles. What should we do about it? Um, uh, what are their interests? What are our interests? Where do they overlap? Can we start from a place where they overlap? Can we figure out um, how we don't change that so it always stays in balance? Um, so there eating more chocolate but from an informed place and we feel mm-hmm. good about that and we might even put something up and say, hey, um, we love Facebook um, and we're actually doing a lot more in this space because we're able to reach you that way but here's what you can do about it. And um, So if, yeah. they, if they're if they eating chocolate because they want to eat the chocolate and not because you've manipulated them in some way, you think it's it's a good outcome. But if they are eating chocolate because somehow they've like been mm. nudged into doing it or it's been some kind of like think, non-consensual process. I think the the challenge the challenge around manipulation is if you're selling chocolate and people buying chocolate and you get a signal that um, people buy chocolate, um, uh, you can approach that in a variety of different ways. Is that manipulation? It's mm. you're performing you're performing your purpose and they are consuming you um, uh, with free will. Manipulation comes in when you um, start getting suggestions from um, the third party to say you should do this now. You should, you know, we've got more data on them. We can tell you mm. something different about these particular people. So, um, women of this particular background do this. So, if you get it, if you right, really start to take, to, mm. yeah. If so, if you're taking adv- if you're taking advantage of more so than um, what you would do for your mission. So, our mission is to sell the best chocolate. You know, when you for the right time, it's like chocolate, chocolate, chocolate for people who feel. You know, it might be something like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you reckon? Congratulations, Warren. You're not fired. That was a very <laughs> insightful way to think about selling chocolate. Yeah, I, I I thought that was a very insightful conversation that just happened. And maybe like the interesting thing to observe is that that's something you might not have discussed if you hadn't like taken the time to stop and have a oh, bit of a chat about yeah. it. We would have just done it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Dan, get onto it. You know. bucks. I mean, one that I always think about, I, I have another, like I have a whole bunch of these, um, these, these provocations and sometimes you get one that's a little bit more appropriate or less for the, the thing. But you know, another one that you could think about is would it be okay if it happened to me? Like if I was the one who just had a breakup and then someone was targeting me based on having had that big breakup, would it, would I be okay with that? And would it be better if I knew it or would it be better if I didn't know it? 
Um, mm. Should we do one more? I think so. I, I would yeah. like to do one more. Have you got any scenarios? Like, I'm, I'm happy to do like scandals from the internet. It doesn't have to be like small practical things if you want to do something big. Okay, so we've um, we've been working for a long time uh, in machine learning, or, or um, and we've um, created world-leading technology, and we have uh, commercial interests queuing up around the block to use it for facial recognition, mm. which we um, don't believe in. Which we don't believe in. Yeah. Yeah. Facial recognition, no good. No good. Okay. We can we can we can use it for games, but mm-hmm. for using it for other purposes. Mm. Mm. Even we could take an example specifically from recent news, which is: Do you remember um, Clearview AI scraping all of these social photos from different mm. platforms without consent? Yeah. Would you like to respond to that one, or just like more broadly, facial recognition? Uh, Your call. I am. This is live sweating here. Like I'm the one making these decisions oh, in the no, corporate no. office. No, no, this is this is just this is just like for for funsies. Yeah, I know, and it's still making me sweat. <laughs> um, yeah, it's why it's hard. Hey, it's difficult. All right, so I guess the simplest thing we could do here is just a pros and cons list. W- what's going to be the greatest good for the most people? What's going to be what get, what's going to impact people negatively? Uh, the most people negatively. Um, so I guess, uh, positive, um, it, facial recognition can help security, uh, allows, uh, like with your phone, so you can get through, uh, verification processes faster. You don't um, have to get selfie elbow anymore. No, like not all at those all. photos are just out there <laughs> yeah. all the time. Um, and then there's a long list of negatives. So yeah. it's, yeah, um, possible for corporate abuse of these, uh, Images like there's possible, uh, like maybe 3D printing of your face to mm. um, bypass these kind of laws. If that data's out there, where they all they need is the, mm. you know, certain points on your face to replicate, and then they can um, just put that into a computer and unlock all your. I feel like facial recognition might have done a better job than the Italian police trying to contain <laughs> coronavirus. You know, in that wealthy part. Yeah. Of so go in the uh, pros pile that you can. Uh, Save Aid. the world. Yeah, save the mm. world from coronavirus. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring out one more ethics litmus test and see if that helps us like refine our thinking on this at all. Can I use storytelling to move from ambiguity, ambiguity to clarity? So this one is asking you to think about how to make this real, like how to make these sorts of harms or benefits we're talking about a little more real. I think this, the story that comes to mind most for me is we like telling um, stories with our photos and our phones and um, cameras and um, you know all the machines, and we tend to think of them as self-contained. And when we um, when we um, it's a very personal technology, and um, knowing that it's been turned against us to say um, that technology that you use to kind of share intimate information um, or store intimate information for your own use uh, is going to be used um, in a widespread way um, uh, against you to actually um, uh, index you, um, uh, profile you, um, all of these kinds of things. Um, Mm, So the like humanity is sort of sucked out. Yeah, we've been, we've been, we've lost control of our own, our own story and our own um, our own cute times. Mm. That's interesting. Thinking about like original sort of analog photography and like the way that we documented our lives, and now it's like we do that, and everyone that we like follows along. And then also these big 
sort of kind of creepy, like lurking corporates also follow along. Mm. And it's maybe not something that we really contend with or think about. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know where to go from here on you this can, one. Can, I, you, you right. my, my brain is boiled on these. Uh, these I think we've probably like done a reasonable job of having a little bit of a, a sort of sticky chat about yeah. some of the interesting things to think through. And then it comes down to, I just don't know what I think about anything until I'm up against the situation most of the time. So yeah, the, this seems like a really valuable tool to help with that kind of thing. Buy two, Dan. Yeah, yeah <laughs> please, please hop online. They look like a... Um, test tube because I wanted to kind of make a visual reference to science and to repeatable experiments. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can like get the like icky, self-righteous, religious bits out of ethics and just actually do the work of grappling with potentially hard things. Who should be grabbing these? Um, what's, what's the most obvious kind of place you'd like to see them? Oh, well, look, I would really love to see them on the desk of every machine learning programmer and researcher in the world. That would be Mm. an amazing thing. But to be totally clear, like if you deal with big data, if you deal with any kind of decision making or like automated decision making at scale, um, honestly, if you do any kind of tech that more than five people use, you Mm. probably want to build up this skill a bit more. And you know, I didn't make these particularly technical in terms of the questions they're asking. It's it's more about helping us build the, the sort of like facility of asking difficult questions and, and grappling with them. So, you know, really anybody is the, the, the short answer. Um, you can check it out at uh, ethical-litmus.site. Uh, um, they're well-designed. Um, Thanks, Warren. They work well. Um, give them a try. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Thanks for your company. We're excited to have this next chat. Um, If you've ever wondered um, where people come up with those uh, amazing insights into um, what you're drinking or eating, um, uh, hints of this, drabs of that, um, people have been looking at that and they've thought, um, how can we um, geek the Jesus out of this? Um, Associate Professor Sigfredo Fuentes is uh, here to talk to us about uh, an amazing beer-sniffing robot. Um, Sigfredo, thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, did, did this come from a, a place of personal experience? Were you kind of like, um, you know, sitting in front of an old scotch or something and then just thought, um, I think I smell something, but can we quantify this? Yes, um, uh, we were discussing before, like... Um a nose or the sense of smell is one of the most ac- uh, acute in uh, humans, mm. but it's uh, one of the most difficult to train. Mm. Um, once you're trained, uh, you start feeling smells everywhere. So <laughs> and that is uh, what probably the downside. What's the what's the hard part? I mean, I guess we're all having like really rich kind of like olfactory experiences. Is it is it just how we verbalize it or how we make connections in the brain? Yeah, or? mainly the senses are um, are way before developed through evolution than the, the language. So they are part of the autonomic nervous system from our brain. So it's automatic responses to smells, tastes, uh, aromas, etc. So, um, and that part uh, has been evolved from way before 250,000 years if you mm. take or leave. Um, now to try to smell something and try to uh, do a conscious um, verbalization, that is uh, the process that you lose a lot of information. So in sensor analysis, we say that 80% of the information that you have when you taste something, you have chocolate, you taste beer, whiskey, whatever you have, um, is unconscious. 
So 20% is what, what you put in paper with uh, ballots or scales or sugar levels, acidity, etc. So we are losing 80% of the information. So what we are trying to do is uh, um, applying digital technologies to assess, for example, face recognition to assess uh, emotional responses. That is, uh, uh, heart rate um, um, changes, blood pressure changes, body temperature changes. It's all automatic uh, using artificial intelligence. And then you can relate it to um, liking of different products and how much do you like it. Uh, we have developed a few models for beer, for chocolate. So just with your face expression and your uh, physiological changes, which is uh, through image analysis, is nothing. we don't put sensors on people. We can assess if you like a particular beer, for example, and how much do you like it and why do you like it. The, uh, if you like the acidity or the sweetness, and you're not answering any question, it's just face and your physiology is telling us uh, the information. So how, how are you measuring people's physiological responses purely through image data? Like, how is that captured? Uh, so we use normal video. Uh, so we developed algorithm, algorithms to enhance the fluctuations and luminosity of your skin in your face. So that is obviously a naked eye is not possible to do. Uh, but then when it's uh, uh, going up and down, the luminosity is related to your flow of um, blood uh, from, this, uh, from your heart, basically, and that is heart rate. Uh, blood pressure is similar principles. Um, so we try to um, assess different algorithms for different... Um, obviously, infrared thermography is just um, standard infrared cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask a slightly pointy question because we were just, just talking about ethics. Um, how how well are you doing with um, measuring people's like blood flow and that change in luminosity you described when you're looking at darker toned faces? Like, are you able to get the same kind of accuracy? Really good question, actually, because uh, there is a lot of uh, um, media uh, around that uh, algorithms, especially artificial intelligence algorithms, are a little bit racist. We have problems with dark skin, mm-hmm. so we need to calibrate um, uh, special algorithms or extensions of the same artificial intelligence algorithms uh, with dark skin. So we need uh, more dark skin participants to assess those changes, so, so mm-hmm. the, the algorithms will learn. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to improve your data capture over that, that sub-demographic? Make, it, make them less racist. Basically. Yeah, great. <laughs> Excellent answer. <laughs> Uh, and and what was the uh, what were some of the early um, uh, technological challenges here? All right, once you had sort of a, a concept or an idea or a theory, um, did you have any failures? Did any sort of um, robots go sort of fizzing out the door? Or um, yeah, no, actually they they uh, they come from questions from the users. Actually, so mm. we ask questions. So we don't uh, develop develop robots because we can. Yeah. Or mm. uh, we do an application. Ah, yeah, because they can. Yeah. So we always ask questions to the end users. So either growers, uh, winemakers, um, brewers, and they, they have different questions, and we're trying to um, answer them with technology, but uh, with really well-based technology in science. Mm-hmm. So um, the robot basically is asking a, a very basic question. It's uh, how do you assess quality of beer? That is an objective measure, uh, because the objective measure that you can have now is uh, having a trained panel of professionals. Now, trained panels, they can take two years to train properly a panel. So uh, craft brewers, uh, they can't really afford that mm-hmm. or have mm-hmm. six people that they're going to be all the time <laughs> tasting the beer. Mm-hmm. So we have them at the university available, but also we have uh, really high technology ex- um, te- um, devices, like, for example, gas chromatography devices for all the aroma profiles that they are a quarter of a million <laughs> uh, each 
and uh, we can assess those as targets from the machine learning. And then we develop low-cost sensors, which is the electronic nodes that we developed with a, an array of really cheap sensors um, that you can f buy anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so that we integrate them, and then we target those readings, raw, the raw data, uh, against these um, very sophisticated machines. Mm -hmm. So then we, we can obtain models of 97% accuracy. So mm -hmm. it's not trivial. Mm. Um, what kind of tests are you doing? We, would you be able to like um, pick someone's like you do tests on them and then you say, well, they like all these profiles which are present in, in this particular beer and if you give, then give them that beer, are they, do they think it's like ambrosia? Is it like, a, like that kind of you're able to pinpoint exactly what someone likes and give it to them? Yeah, actually, we're working on models like that. So basically, you taste different beers, and with just your uh, face expression and your physiology changes, we can actually uh, get a particular beer that is right for you, like particularly uh, for every single person. So that is really the next level. And actually, the next, well, the, the, the next level is uh, producing a beer that is your liking. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like it's mm -hmm. like the the real world and analog version of the the personalized algorithm, right? You're going to get the beer brewed precisely for your tastes. Yeah, it's like the neurophone of beers. Yeah. yeah, I can think of a lot of beer drinkers who would be very into that. I am very into this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the algorithms to assess well the emotional responses and mm -hmm. the liking are calibrated per person as well, because mm -hmm. uh, there are differences in different cultures. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Asian population they have different reactions to beer. Um, uh, in temperature um, uh, predominantly so you know the Asian flash mm -hmm. <laughs> is real <laughs> actually you can have differences in, in two minutes from uh, uh, somebody that drink a beer uh, they can go from 60 bits per minute to 120 and they don't notice uh, from uh, two degrees in temperature changes so that is the uh, Asian flash that's a that's very real. big physiological change. Yeah. In Western, uh, Western populations, um, increasing temperature is related to liking. So increasing temperature when you drink beer uh, is related to that you like it, you like it more. Mm. Um, have, you, have you thought of any um, commercial applications of this? Are you interested in letting other people commercialize this technology? Um, asking, again, pointed questions, but I'm, I'm very curious because I could see this being like amazing um, and also maybe a little bit evil depending on who yeah. got their hands on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that is the objective. So um, I think uh, the technology, um, with, we can develop it for the sake of research, but mm -hmm. um, we're publishing all these papers, but uh, the main objective is trying to commercialize it and commercialize it to make it available at low cost to, sorry, <laughs> a low cost to, um, uh, for um, craft brewers. Uh, at the moment, you know, in, especially in Melbourne, everywhere around the world that I've been, there is a lot of um, craft brewer, uh, brewing companies coming out. Mm -hmm. The problem is um, they are coming out and uh, people like the novelty of beer. So uh, as you all pro probably you go to a pub and they say, oh, what is this beer? It's just a novelty. Uh, so then they get a market at the beginning. But then uh, we found that uh, people, they go to the beers that they like and they, they are more familiar they go back to that. So actually, they go, there's going to be like a beer, uh, peak beer mm -hmm. <laughs> in, the, in the market uh, for novelty, but then it's going to crash. Mm. And we've seen it uh, mm. at the moment. Yeah. So you're seeing a crash in craft beers at the moment? or if uh, That is the main thing. So if craft beer companies, they don't do like consumer studies, like uh, 
putting not, not only this technology, but sensor appreciation, how the consumers, mm -hmm. they like it or not, uh, they are bound to crash. 90% of new products in the market related to food or beverages, mm. they fail in the market if they don't do studies of consumer appreciation. Mm. Um, and something I've heard about craft breweries as well as like not knowing what people like and just doing something for their own taste is also that quality control can be quite difficult. Yeah. yeah. So you might you might find you have a lot of spoilage um, if you don't control your environment very precisely. Yeah, that, that is one of the objectives of the Eno. So we're calibrating to detect um, faults as well on beer. Faults in beer, on beer, wine and different beverages. So you could be able to get this into a production line and say, well, yeah. this batch is tainted with something... That is the objective. So yeah. the main thing is um, uh, we are not trying to replace sensory panels or mm. people that try the beers or um, go um, against the taste of uh, the brewers. It's mainly that you can do it more repetitively and uh, accurate and uh, at low cost. We, we, reject, we reject our new beer overlords in favor <laughs> of our wonky tastes, uh, yeah. Sigfredo. But um, I, I think it's great. Um, how can people sort of um, check this out and um, sort of follow it along? So just um, uh, you can Google uh, uh, Robo Beer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that is uh, we we appear actually in uh, Science Magazine and Forbes. Mm. So it's, uh, it's pretty famous. There is a, a video on YouTube uh, that explains the robot mm. and how it works, the different sensors, and uh, it's made with Lego. Mm. So it's pretty good. Uh, for kiddies, <laughs> we're doing an alcoholic beer as well. <laughs> nice. Well, it's a, it's a great idea. And um, yeah, thank you very much for coming in and sharing that with no us. No worries. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, thanks to our guest, Laura. Thanks for talking about litmus test. My pleasure. Um, I thank you also to Sigfredo for um, his amazing robots. And uh, oh, we'd love to get one. Um, stick around. Anthony Crew is here now. Um, Dan, Elizabeth, um, everyone involved in the show, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.